0: Deanna and Rachel. Beautiful. Love that wonderful cello, don't you? Man, just love that cello. Well, this morning we're going to begin a new series, a four-week series, the Lord willing, on the judgment of God. (laughs) You would expect that from a Baptist preacher, right? But uh, it sounds kind of ominous, you know? Oh boy, let's go hear about the judgment of God. But um, we're going to talk about specifically the four great judgments listed in Scripture. When I was a child, um, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but uh, being a child and sometimes I have misguided perceptions, the term Judgment Day filled my heart with uh, fear and wonderment. Like, well, what is Judgment Day? It didn't help, I think, that. Uh, you know, we would hear songs and sometimes uh, messages, and it didn't seem like it was always super clear to me that uh, what was going to happen. In my mind, Judgment Day sounded like that there was going to be this one day, this one big, giant courtroom in the sky. And everybody was going to come there. And one by one, you're going to be dragged up in front of the judge. Your deeds were going to be uh, talked about. And though I didn't know I believed this, I can tell you that many people of years have said it this way, that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you go to heaven. Your bad works outweigh your good works. You're going to that burning place. And that was the thought, at least in my mind, there was this one great judgment day where the this uh, stern, and I wasn't upset with God like He was some meanie, but I mean I must tell you it was an ominous thought in my mind that there was this day coming that everybody was going to stand before Father God. Now, um, as I have uh, grown in the Lord, as I have become more educated biblically. I've come to realize that there are actually many judgments in Scripture. Perhaps the ones we are very familiar with is the Edenic judgment where in the Garden of Eden, God judged mankind and we're still suffering. And these hurricanes and all these other things, these are all just part of that judgment. There's the Noaic judgment that happened to the earth when God inundated the earth with a great deluge. There are other judgments in Scripture, but there are four great judgments. There are four judgments that as a believer we face today, New Testament believer we face. Now, two of those judgments are ones that we want to be part of. There are two of those judgments we don't want to be part of. And we, over the next four weeks, We'll talk about those, maybe five weeks. I think we may skip a week when we have Family Dedication Sunday. But we will talk about these judgments. And you would say, now, Pastor, really? I mean, this is, uh, you know, the year 2017. You're not supposed to preach about judgment to American Christians. Uh, They they won't come back. But uh, here's my uh, premise, and here is my thought. And I, I'm going to read a quote because I think it really summarizes why I'm doing this. If men will not understand the meaning of judgment, they will never come to understand the meaning of grace. And so while I do know that speaking on judgment for four weeks sounds somewhat, uh, you know, alarming. I do think if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you will actually appreciate the fact of God's unequivocal justice, coupled with his amazing grace and mercy. You cannot study judgment without, at the same time, studying God's grace and mercy. And so, a study on the four judgments, I think, will be very helpful. Today, we're going to talk about the first judgment, the judgment at the cross. Well, speaking of uh, those uh, end times, speaking of uh, standing before God in heaven, here's a tongue-in-cheek kind of story that I think uh, you'll get a kick out of. A doctor, a nurse, and a talk executive of an HMO all died. Doctor, nurse, and executive of an HMO died. They are in line together at the pearly gates. St. Peter speaks with them, asks them, the good they've done in their life. The doctor says, I've devoted my life to the sick and needy i have had a part in caring for healing of thousands of people. Peter says, all right, great, go ahead. Into heaven you go. (laughs) And what about you? To the nurse, well, I've supported the doctor and his parents my entire life as an adult and have taken time to explain things to patients. I've helped them lead more healthy lives. Well, wonderful. Good, nurse. Please proceed in with the doctor. And what about you? The HMO executive says, well, I was the president of a very large health maintenance organization. I was responsible for the health care of millions of people all over the country. Peter said, oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Well, you can go in, but you can only stay two nights. There you go. All right. You adults will get that one for sure. Well, uh, let's talk about the four judgments this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. I pray that, Lord, you'll just give us your grace and your wisdom. Please, Lord, just uh, ignite my spirit, Lord, as I talk about this doctrinal truth. In Jesus' name, in all of us, amen. The first judgment of the four judgments is the judgment at the cross. Let's go to John chapter 5 if you would in verse 24 and we're going to read this amazing verse that reminds us of that day then when all of our sins were judged at the cross. John chapter 5, please. Now Jesus was speaking to his followers, he was also talking to some false teachers, some religious leaders who were way off base. And he said, if you are a believer in the gospel, you have accepted Christ, then you will never have to go to hell because your sins have already been judged. Now, let's read out loud verse 24. We're going to go over several verses in chapter 5, but verse 24 to begin with. And let's ask God to just convey the richness of this meaning. All right, let's read it out loud. you have it on the overhead here? Good. All right, let's read it together. Ready? Begin. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Jesus very clearly declares the result of this first judgment. There are four judgments, great judgments. Oh, yes, there are many judgments in Scripture, uh, but the judgments of the tribulation period. But there are four great judgments. The first one is the judgment at the cross. And in this narrative, Jesus is saying, if you have trusted Christ, if you are born again Christian, all of your sins have been judged. You will never have to face those sins so that it would take you to hell. Let's start with verse 17 of chapter 5, and let's see how he came to this point. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto and I work. Verse 18, the Jews were really upset at that. Therefore, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, the false teachers sought the more to kill him. They were already trying to kill him. They just got so excited. Just We got to kill this guy. Because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but he said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Clearly unashamed of what he had just done, healing a man on the Sabbath day, he said, it is my prerogative. It is my right as the son of God. I can heal on any day, including the Sabbath day it is my sovereign right. Now, a little footnote, Jesus wasn't discounting the Old Testament law about working on the Sabbath day. He was just clarifying it, and that's certainly his right to do so. The false teachers, however, were just livid, and in their minds, things had just gone from bad to worse. It infuriates any enemy of the cross when someone glorifies Jesus as God. You can talk about God, you can talk about the Holy Spirit, but the minute you say, Jesus is God, whoo, you watch out. uh, That's when the fireworks begin. Now from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, we find a doctrinal discourse, really a theology lesson by Jesus himself about judgment, about the end times and he explains something. He said, I have been given a commission. My commission is that of a mediator. I am a judge between God and man. This is something that nobody else would do, really something nobody else could do. And The reason is because I and I alone have been always obedient to the law, to the Father's judgment. Look what he says in verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. God the Son, God the Father. God the Son is absolutely devoted to the will of God the Father. It is impossible for them to act separately because they are three in one. Father God approved what Jesus was doing. He put his stamp of approval on his life. It was kind of like the Senate hearings we had a few months ago when they were able to confirm a new Supreme Court judge, a wonderful, conservative-minded Supreme Court judge who this last week we saw the great result of when they ruled in favor of that baker from Colorado who said, no, I'm not going to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage. I think it's my right. They can live like they want and I'm not going to fight them, but I don't have to make a cake for them. And the Supreme Court ruled in their favor. And uh, thank God for that. But that, um, yes, thank God for that judge, finally. But that judge had to be confirmed. He got the stamp of approval by the Congress, and though it was a challenge, it happened. God the Father confirmed Jesus. He is now the Supreme Court Justice, and God approves, kind of like one of those political ads, you know, and they say all kinds of things, and at the end the candidate said, I am so and so, and I approve of this. And I put my stamp of approval on this ad, and that's what Jesus is saying here. I am a judge, and you can do nothing about it. He's talking to these people, because the Father has confirmed me. He's approved. Two thumbs up. I'm the judge. Verse 20, for the Father loveth the Son. He loves the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. doesn't hide anything. They are one. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Now, Jesus, God the Son, speaks of his equality with God the Father. And he specifically says that the Father has given him a very unique jurisdiction. Notice what it says a greater work. I have come to be a good example to this world. I have come to spread the love of God to this world. I have come to display God to this world. I have come to be the savior of this world. But now God has given me, God the Father has given me another work, a greater work, and that is as judge. Jesus is the judge at the cross. He is also the judge at the great white throne and the Judge for the other judgments. He is the judge. And God, make no mistake about it, God is a just and judging God. If you were to go to Washington, D.C. today, you would go to, I'm sure, all the different uh, sites there. You would want to see the White House. You would go to the Washington Monument. But if you went to the Jefferson Memorial, you would find inscribed on the walls there, these words by one of our founders. And listen, because it talks about the judgment and the judgment of God. Liberties are the gift of God, Jefferson said. Are they not to be violated, but with his wrath? Indeed, indeed I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. That was back in the day when they talked about the judgment and the justice of God. Certainly an unpopular term, a topic today even for preachers. But let's talk about, first of all, who is in charge of the judgment. Everybody today wants to know where the buck stops. There's a council that is trying to figure out whether our president colluded with the Russians and what is their bottom line concept is follow the money. Follow the money and you'll find out what happens. And that's what everybody says when they try to figure out if somebody is doing something wrong. Just follow the money and we'll find out. Well, follow the money and we'll find out who is in charge. Jesus Christ has been given the commission. He is the most perfect, the most wise, the most loving, the most amazing judge that there's ever been or ever will be. And that's what these verses say. Verse 22, for the Father judgeth no man. Did you hear that? People often think we're going to stand before Father God. No, actually not. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So Jesus is and will be the judge at all the judgments and certainly was the judge at the cross. It is the Father's good pleasure to allow mankind thank God, to be judged by a 100% truly qualified judge. Anytime they try to pick a Supreme Court justice, they want to make sure that this justice is impartial. However, we all know that even an impartial human always has certain leanings in their philosophy and in their mindset. And so sometimes they talk about a conservative judge or a liberal judge. And though they're willing to impartially uh, listen to the dictates of the law and adjudicate it hopefully correctly. They, it's their lifestyle and their beliefs that colors what they're going to say. And, G, and God said, you're in luck, humans. You're in great, you have been blessed with the greatest judge of all, Jesus Christ. He is going to judge you and will judge you. Now, why did God give Jesus the commission as judge? For two reasons. First of all, so number one, Christ would get glory. That's what he said in verse 23, that all men should honor the Son. Why did he make Jesus the judge? So that all men would honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Why not? They are one. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which sent him. God's great design and man's great duty is to have a Christ-honoring life and a Christ-honoring worship. That is really the goal of every church, is to be Christ-honoring in its worship and Christ-centered. There's a church in our area, and not here to bash other churches, but I think it points out a good point at this thing, a sad point, really. There's a church in this area who very... uh, very um, unashamedly proclaims that they are a progressive ministry. Their, uh, their whole philosophy is this our church is not doctrinal, it is relational. Now, I will tell you right up front that is not a progressive mindset, that is a regressive mindset. Any church that is centered on people rather than on a Savior is going backwards, not forwards. I promise you, God the Father put Jesus front and center. We're not here to worship a pastor or a music group or whatever. We are here to worship Jesus Christ. Never lose sight of the fact that a church and a family and a life must be a Christ-centered life. And the Father said the reason that Jesus is the judge is so that he gets glory. Number two, the reason is so that mankind would get mercy. That's what it says, really, in a sense, in verse 27. He hath given him authority, Jesus, to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. The greatest person we could have judging us is someone who's been there, done that. He is the Son of Man, if you'll notice. The Son of Man. That's why Jesus is called by so many wonderful names in Scripture, one of them being the Son of Man. He was human in all points, divine in all points. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to go through everything we've gone through. You know, I want to stand before somebody who's been there, done that. I want to stand before somebody who knows how I feel. you know, I would say to God, you don't know how it is to be a human. You don't know what it's like to be tempted, but Jesus does know. And so we can stand before a wonderful Savior like that. There's a story that I read that Warren Wearsby tells, I think that plays into this thought. It comes from the Old West. There was a horse that bolted away. There was a little carry in this wagon, and it was just a terrifying ordeal. There was a little boy on the wagon, and seeing this horse running down the lane there with the little boy in that wagon, a man, young man, risked his life to catch the horse, jump up on the wagon and stop it. The child who was saved grew up to be a lawless man, unfortunately, and one day stood before a judge, sentenced for his very serious crimes. But unbelievably, he recognized the judge as the man who years before had saved his life, He pled for mercy on the basis of that experience. But the words from the bench silenced his plea. Young man, then I was your Savior. Today I'm your judge, and I must sentence you to be hanged. One day Jesus Christ will say to every rebellious sinner during the day of grace, during the day when you could be saved, I was your Savior, but today I am your judge. Who is in charge? Jesus Christ. What are the rules? How does this Commission take place. Look at verse 24, as we read earlier, an amazing verse, just an incredible verse. Verse 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation or shall not be judged, but is passed from death unto life. Jesus prefaces his commands with these words, verily, verily. That translated really in English would be something like, this is something very certain. You can take this to the bank. There's no, uh, no ifs, ands, buts about this. This is like someone saying, okay, now I'm, what I'm about to tell you is the absolute truth. Don't even, there's not even a, a wobble room at all. This is. You listen to this. Verily, verily, take this one to the bank first we see the character of becoming a christian he that heareth my word ah but more than that he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me now the judgment there are four judgments there are many judgments listed in the scripture but there are four great judgments we all have a divine appointment with our creator and the first judgment is the judgment at the cross as a believer I want to make sure that I have all my sins judged. I don't want to have to stand before God and have him judge my sin at the great white throne judgment. I want to make sure that it was judged at Calvary. But here, notice what it says. He that heareth my word and believeth on him. Notice very clearly the wording here. When we accept the gospel, we are believing on him that sent Jesus. So, when I accept Jesus, I'm not just accepting Jesus. I'm accepting everything about God the Father, that God is holy, that God is just, that the Bible is without error, that Jesus Christ never sinned. I don't believe you can believe that Jesus sinned to become a Christian. There's no way because he is an innocent sacrifice. We must believe that Jesus took our place. We must believe that all the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And so what Jesus was saying here is that you not only have to hear the gospel, but you do have to believe the gospel. And so you're here this morning and you say, well, how do I know really if I'm a Christian? Well, do you believe that God is divine? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he died on the cross? Do you believe that he rose again? Do you believe that he is holy? Have you asked him to come into your life? Well, then if you believe those things, then really the only thing left is whether you're sincere or not. Do you believe that you were sincere or not? Well, I don't know. Best I know how, as best I can. I just believe I'm sincere. Well, then my friend, the character of a real Christian is not just hearing, but believing. And we can believe it. Some people say, I can't believe it. Yes, you can. That's just a you know, that's just a smoke and mirrors that we make in our brain that, oh, I can't believe those things. Yes, you can. You can believe that Jesus is God. You can believe that, uh, that God is a holy God. You can believe on Jesus Christ. Well, then what happens? Not only the, um, the character of a Christian, but then notice the charter of a Christian. What is the permission, the right? What, what, uh, what is the authority that a Christian gets as a result of becoming a Christian? They shall not come into condemnation. Shall not. They receive full discharge from the judgment of God. You and I should have to spend eternity in hell for all we've done. God has done everything possible so that we don't have to go to hell and to keep us out of hell and and yet still let us retain our free will as a person. God's done everything he can. And his point is, look, I'm here so that you can have eternal life. And notice the privilege that it states in this verse. It says here in verse 24, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. That's present tense. Well, when I die, I'm going to have eternal life. No, my friends, you have eternal life right now. It says you have it. Notice what it says, that next part of that verse, is passed from death into life. I've already passed from death unto life. I've already there. Now God's not going to take it away from me. I already have everlasting life. I already have passed from death unto life. Why is the cross so important then? Why is the judgment at the cross so important? It is the place where God took the, where God the Son took the wrath of God the Father. And paid it for every believer. Look what it says in Colossians, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, explained it this way. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. It pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. You saw how Jesus picked up the little child in his arms. That's God the Father would do that. We saw how Jesus healed the sick. God the Father would do that. We saw how Jesus educated. We saw how Jesus loved. And we saw how Jesus was angry with hypocrisy. That's all God the Father. It pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. There's not one mistake in Jesus. There's not one uh, part about him that's less than God the Father. No, he is one with the Father. And having peace, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It was the cross. It was his shed blood on the cross. By him to reconcile all things, all people. There's not some people that are destined to hell and some people that are destined to heaven. No, everybody can go to heaven. That's what it says right there. He's made peace by the blood of his cross so that all people, all things unto himself, things on this earth and things in heaven. This is the first judgment. God made peace for believers by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what makes my peace. You'd say, well, boy, I sure feel better when I go to church, and boy, I went there, and they had candles, and I heard the monks singing. You know, Well, I'm glad that made you feel better, but I will tell you, you won't have peace with God because you went to the, some cathedral. Pauline and I had the privilege of being in Paris, France, and went to that one—I uh, forget the name of it now—but some big cathedral there, built in the 10th or 11th century. You know, still have the stones there. I mean, it's amazing. It's just uh, incredible. And uh, people were lining up for—I mean, hundreds of people were lining up to come in there and light a candle. And they said, "Do you want to light a candle?" I said, "No, I'm not lighting no candle. Sorry." And uh, I do want to go here and look at it. It's just amazing architecture. It's uh, amazing to see. But I promise you, I am not lighting a candle to some saint. I'm not going there to find peace. I'm just going there to look at all the buildings. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And I'll tell you what, you could travel all over the world, go to that cathedral, but you're not going to get any closer to God. It doesn't work that way. You say, well, I said 10 Hail Marys, and now I feel the peace of God. You may have said 10 Hail Marys, but any peace you feel is just between the ears. It's not real. Uh-uh. God made peace with believers through the blood of the cross. It is the blood of the cross that gives us peace. You'd say, well, I got baptized and I just felt so much better. Look, baptism is a wonderful thing to do. It's an incredible thing to do. In fact, it is a command of God to do. But while it's a command, it will not get us any closer to God in the sense of getting us to heaven. It has nothing to do with going to heaven. It's just a step of obedience after we get saved. You'd say, well, um, how about if I get my rug out and I three times a day I look to the east to to Allah God and I just just feel so much better. Well, Well, I'm glad you feel better. But I will tell you, That uh, getting on a rug or wherever you are, I mean, it's certainly an act of dedication and we're we're amazed by that and impressed by that even. But I will tell you, he doesn't get you one bit closer to a holy God. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can get us close to God. And that's what God is saying here. It is the blood of the cross. Therefore, the first judgment is the judgment on the cross. This is one judgment I want to be part of. This is the judgment I want to be there. I, so you'll say, Oh, I'm so afraid of standing before God. I'm going to tell you right now, this is one judgment. I'm glad I stood before God. I'm glad I looked before the judge Jesus Christ. And like we sang this morning, I put my trust in Jesus. He is my Savior. What did he do? He took my sin. He took my death. Look what the prophet said in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. Very clearly. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now, God is not a liar. God's not only not a liar, he can't lie. If God lies ever, he ceases to be God. Well, then wait a second. Wait. How can God then let anybody go to heaven? If the Bible says he that sins has to die and go to hell. Well, that's the great problem. We don't judge God. We don't blame God. If a criminal has to go and is sentenced for their crimes, we don't blame the judge. He's just doing what he has to do. It's the criminal that has the problem. But God is bound by his holy law. And if we go to hell, it's not the judge's fault. It's our fault. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. What did God do? God provided an exchange. This particular verse is known as, in theology as the great exchange. It's an amazing verse. Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was so amazed by what Jesus had done for him. Even though he had religion, even though that he had a, a good life, raised in Cilicia, well-to-do parents, they were tent makers, and Paul had, uh, at that time, named Saul, had an amazing education. Educated at the field of Gamaliel. He was circumcised on the eighth day as any good Jew would be. This guy, he was, this guy was absolutely a Jew of Jews. He was, you could have not had a better lifestyle than Saul. And yet he had no peace because he hadn't accepted the blood of the cross. But one day, and he couldn't get rid of the fact that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he... God the Father, if you want to put that in. For He, God the Father, hath made Him, Jesus Christ, if you want to put that there, to be sin for us, who, Jesus, knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, Jesus. You ought to write the great exchange above that verse. That's what this verse has been called by theologians. The great exchange. That is, He swapped His righteousness for our sin. The great exchange. He took our sin on him. He gave us his righteousness. As hard as it is to imagine, Jesus surrendered his robe of sinlessness and became sin on our behalf. That's why we can be clothed with the righteousness of God. We stand before God, not in our own righteousness, but in his righteousness. That's why the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is Therefore, now, the moment I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, there is now no condemnation, no hell, to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Notice that little word, them. Circle that word and put up there, I am one of them. (laughs) If you've been saved, you're one of them. Paul said here, he said, if you are one of them if you're one of them, one of them people who are in Christ Jesus, guess what? All of your sins have been judged. The four judgments, there's four great judgments. Yes, there's many judgments listed in scripture, but there are four great judgments, two that we want to be part of and two that we certainly don't. The two that we want to be part of, first one is the judgment at the cross. Can I tell you, if you're a born again Christian, there is no judgment for you, all of your sins have already been judged. How is that? Because you have already been tried, you've already been convicted, you've already been sentenced, you've already been judged. It's all been taken care of by somebody else. And I will tell you there's no double jeopardy with God. He doesn't ever convict anybody twice of the same crime. He is a just God. If I would ever have to go to hell, Once I've been saved, then what does it mean when Jesus said on the cross, It is finished? That would be inconsistent with the finished work of Christ. We as believers believe in a finished work, not a partial work, not a I'm getting there work. It's a finished work. You're either saved or you're not. You're either saved or lost. There's no getting there. There's no, like the Bible says, you're either a saint or you ain't. (laughs) I mean, it's as simple as that. It is a finished work. He totally paid for our sins. Now, some people get a wrong concept about this saying, well, if there's no condemnation, then that means there's no consequences. Now, that does not mean there's no consequences for sin. That just means, thank the Lord, there's no hell for my sin as a believer. And I believe it's prudent to be alert that there are are consequences, maybe not eternal condemnation, but there are certainly consequences for our sin. And there's some teaching going around and it's just devastating to the lives of Christians when they say, there's no consequences for my sins, because you know Jesus paid it all. He only God always looks at me as holy. Well, if God always looks at us as holy, then why did the Apostle Paul and why did so many of the other epistles say, you're this way and you're this way and you're grieving God? No, God, while God judicially will not judge us for our sins, because of our um, standing with the Lord, our state may not be in good shape. And there's at least seven things we lose or seven consequences to sin. First is a loss of fellowship. No, thank God I'll never have to spend eternity in hell, but I can lose fellowship with the Lord. And I will tell you that it's no fun to be around somebody that there's no joy and intimacy. I mean, can you imagine, and sometimes people do, they have marriages where they just don't have intimacy. they just not a happy home. and it's a terrible way to live. But you know what? I don't want to live with God that way. I want to be close to the Lord. I want to be close to Him. And I... When we have sin in our life, we lose that fellowship. There's a loss of power. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, we quench His power. And then we end up operating in the energy of flesh, and everything that we do for the Lord is like making bricks without straw. It's just terrible. It feels horrible. Singing, practicing, studying for preaching, preaching, serving the Lord in the ministry, working in the children's department. I mean, if you are operating in the power of the flesh, it is misery, if you have the power of God, and that should tell us, hey, we need to get close to God. Maybe there's some consequences here. There's a loss of opportunities. If we are sinful, no, thank God, I don't go to heaven. I don't go to hell, but I can lose opportunities to serve the Lord. God doesn't give opportunities to those who are worldly. There is a loss of motivation for serving God. Carnal believers just don't want to serve God. They just rather do other things. And as a result of that, they just lose out on chances to get blessings and chances to get rewards. And so while I never have to go to hell, there's certainly a loss of motivation. There's a loss of relationships. A carnal life only just breaks relationships. It's just, you know, there's just those around us, our coworkers, our family members, people in the ministry. It's just there's just such a loss of relationships, and uh, we go through life, and then look back and say, man, I missed all these years of having sweet fellowship with these people. And there's a loss of health. Sometimes health and vitality, not always a result of sin, but First Corinthians 11 teaches us very clearly that sometimes there is a sickness that comes to our life because of sin. While it's not an eternal condemnation, it is a temporal consequence And then certainly a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, the Lord willing. But those loss of rewards, no, thank God, I don't lose my salvation. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 3.15. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But hallelujah, he himself shall be saved. Hallelujah, he himself shall be saved. My. I may suffer loss, but I will never have to go to hell because I have been saved as through fire. If you were a born-again Christian, he will never be judged eternally for your sin. You will never have to pay an eternal penalty in hell for that because the death of Jesus Christ was all sufficient. In regard to the issue of sin, it's been forever satisfied. God cannot, God will not ever exact punishment twice because that payment has been fully satisfied. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Jesus died. He paid that price so that I could have eternal life. He took the full wrath of God. He didn't take 90% of the wrath of God or 50% of the wrath of God. I take the other. No. He took 100% the wrath of God. God looks at my life and your life and he can find no judicial cause for sending us to an eternity in hell. He could no more do that than he can accuse Jesus and send him to hell because I am in Christ Jesus. And if I'm in Christ Jesus, he can't send Jesus to hell. He can't send me to hell. And that's the amazing thing about what God has done. In my childhood, I had these funny concepts that someday we're going to all stand before this great throne, and there's going to be this, you know, this ominous God there, and he's going to judge our deeds. But I'm not sure where that happened or where that came into my brain, but I have learned over the years that there are four great judgments. And the first one is the judgment of the cross. I'm going to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, he said, if you don't look at Christ on the cross you'll have to look at him on the throne. If you don't look at him on the cross as the one judging your sins, then you'll have to look at him at the great white throne judgment as the one who will judge us because of the fact that we neglected our salvation. He came at Bethlehem so that we could be saved. He went to Calvary so that we could be saved. But I will tell you, if we're not saved the next time he comes back, it's not going to be like a little baby. It's not going to be like a suffering lamb on the cross. He's coming back. And all we have to do is look at the book of Revelation to see how he's coming back. And I will tell you folks, if I more and more, the, uh, the offense of this world that coming together, you cannot see all the things lining up and not be able to say, like Matthew said, that the olive branch is budding. It's just budding. It's it is about time for springtime. It's about time for the coming of our Lord. All the things are coming together. You say, do you believe that Jesus is coming today? No, I believe he's coming right now. He's coming at any moment. Folks, be ready. Make sure that you have him as your Savior. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning.